Welcome to Commercializing Living Therapies with CCRM. In this podcast, we'll be engaging with cell and gene therapy industry experts and influencers and sharing insider insights, information, and trends. CCRM is a leader in developing and commercializing regenerative medicine-based technologies and cell and gene therapies. I'm your host, Krista Lamb, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing how to create broader societal awareness of cell and gene therapies, and how, as people are trying to commercialize these therapies, can we talk about them to the public and those outside the industry. Our guests today are Dr. Janet Rousson, who is a world-leading expert in developmental biology and the president and scientific director of the Gairdner Foundation and Dr. Phil Vanek, who is the Chief Technology Officer for Gamma Bioscience and who has decades of experience working in the regenerative medicine industry. Welcome to the show. So first, why don't you tell me a little bit about the roles that you have at your different institutes? Janet, did you want to start? Well, so I've been a longtime stem cell biologist um, at the Hospital for Sick Children. Um, I'm beginning to close down my lab there, but I'm currently the, direct, the president and scientific director of the Gairdner Foundation. And Phil, did you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm the chief technology officer for a private equity-backed uh, company focused on life sciences, tools, and technologies named Gamma Biosciences. And I'll direct the question to both of you, but I'll let Janet start. So what do you see as the biggest challenge right now in terms of overall awareness of cell and gene therapies by the public? Well, I think that the the public is aware generically that gene therapies and cell therapies are out there, but I don't think they have a pretty big understanding of the specifics. Some people, of course, feel that they should be ready today. We, I have a disease, why can't I get gene and cell therapy? So they're very aware. And we have the problem there of trying to make sure that they understand that this is still early days for many of these therapies. And then perhaps the rest of the public is not very aware at all of, of the excitement of what is coming down the, the road in the next few years. And Phil, what do you think? Yeah, I think in this community, we tend to throw a lot of jargony terms around. So we speak about cell and gene therapies in ways that may not be completely accessible to the patients and the communities that we try to serve. So um, I I think really just building a better understanding of what these therapies can do and what they cannot do. And I think to Janet's very good point is how could I, or as a a patient with a rare disease or or some infliction, how could I actually access these? And then secondly is also separating it from the less, let's say legitimate forms of stem cell therapy quackery that's out there. Yeah, I would certainly follow up on that and say absolutely that's that's the the other side of the coin is the sort of uh, unproven stem cell therapies which make which are out in the public domain uh, and can very much uh, uh, pull people away from the really the excitement and the real uh, therapies that are coming down the pipe. As as people in the stem cell field, obviously it's part of our duty to try to explain to people uh, how important it is to really understand whether a therapy has been gone through clinical trials, has really been proven and is really effective. 
And Janet, I'll get you to follow up a little bit on that, because I think one of the things, and even when I worked in the regenerative medicine field, you would often have patients calling and saying, you know, I heard about this in the newspaper, or I saw this, and I really want to get this treatment. How do I get it? And you always felt a little bit like the bad guy telling them that they couldn't have it because there wasn't something that was available at this time. So how can we in the commercialization industry help to explain this better to the public? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I do think that uh, as part of the sort of public outreach that companies and scientists and everybody has to do is to explain what the therapies are and at what stage they're at and help people understand that this is coming down the pipe. Uh, They may be able to get involved in small trials now, but like every other uh, innovative therapy, at the beginning, the patients who enroll are not necessarily the ones who are going to benefit in the long run. So I think the outreach of these kind of podcasts where we can talk about where we're at today are very important tools. And Phil, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. I think that uh, understanding kind of the journey that we're on, it's, you know, if you look back 30 years in biologics where the new and emerging therapeutic modality that people were hopeful would be transformative to, you know, patient outcomes. The same thing's happening now. We're at the beginning of our journey. I think we've seen lots of great clinical successes. I think that if you think about um, some of the immunotherapies in particular, an area that I'm focused on in our company, we we definitely see um, kind of this evolution that the next generation therapies will be better than the existing therapy generation of therapies. But the fact that they exist at all is a testament to the great scientific work that's been, you know, shepherding in this this uh, latest stage of advanced therapies. Yeah, I mean, certainly immunotherapies is a great example where years and years of basic science of trying to understand, you know, what cancer is, how how uh, T cells work, how to really attack cancer, is really now coming forward with amazing new therapies. And the the promise of of, uh, immunotherapy for many different cancers is really, really right here and now. And we are seeing clinical trials and clinical applications. So that's very exciting. If you look more generally at regenerative medicine um, and using cells to replace uh, damaged tissues, we're perhaps at a slightly earlier stage, but we are seeing now clinical trials for the first time, really, of, of cells derived from pluripotent stem cells. You know, a lot of excitement and hype about pluripotent stem cells over the last 20 or so years. They're going to solve everything. Well, of course, it takes time. But now we're seeing that the new therapies are coming forward. We're seeing success in uh, diseases like macular degeneration. We're seeing some interesting steps forward, even for diabetes, heart disease. Things are really moving forward. And I think that's the time at which... You know, as a scientist, you have back in the day, you spent most of your time trying to explain to people that it's going to take several years before this comes through. And after a while, you feel like the, the public are going, well, when is it coming? And I think what we are seeing is that now these things are actually coming through to the clinic. And of course, gene therapies and gene editing therapies are also moving extremely rapidly into the clinical domain. And novel drugs, you look at cystic fibrosis. I'm at the hospital for sick children. Uh, the gene was clo- cloned you know, 25 years ago uh, with 
that should have solved everything. We know what the protein is. We know what's wrong with what goes wrong with people. It's taken that long for us to actually develop therapies that are based on understanding the, the protein, the gene itself. But those therapies, those new drugs that really affect the, the channel that's uh, defective in, in cystic fibrosis are really uh, game changers. They're really putting, allowing uh, children to have you know, much more normal lives. So this is, this is a big game changer. But I'm going to throw in the but, which perhaps Krista's going to throw in at some point. How do we deal with the issue of the cost of all these novel therapies? Uh, and I think as we, as we see the excitement, and we really are seeing these things moving into the uh, uh, clinical domain, the, the cost of therapies is something that uh, everybody has to be aware of. And we have to work with the healthcare system, work with the, the, the reimbursement systems to really try and come up with a fair way of making sure that these really transformative therapies can be applied in the healthcare system broadly. Yeah, you definitely struck on an issue that is very near to me in the sense that I think that it's really important that we look at how we can continue to pay for these projects and make sure that they're viable. And so Phil, I'll turn this over to you a little bit because there's a couple of things within that question about how are we going to make sure that these are economical for the system, but also how do we mitigate the excitement and the hype against keeping things in perspective? So there's a bit of a double question in there. Yeah, you might have to remind me of the second part, but addressing the the, the cost side is really quite interesting because in particular in the US market where I am, the, the, the cost and the price of these therapies can be divergent, right? They can be quite a bit, <laughs> there can be a big distance between the two. And it's about the willingness of the reimbursers to actually cover the cost of these or cover the price of these things. The, the cost side, I always say is, is, is manageable, right? It's the first car ever built probably costs a lot more than it costs to build cars today. The first biologic with the inefficient manufacturing processes that existed 25, 30 years ago were quite expensive on a per dose basis. But over time, and with the demand and the driving of the adoption of these therapies and the broader availability, uh, innovators beyond the clinical innovators, the, the technology and the manufacturing innovation and supply chain innovation that goes behind that uh, becomes a critical element of you know, addressing these. So, you know, I, I, I applaud Janet and her team and, and, and all the clinicians out there that are working on these therapeutics from the biological perspective and, you know, making these transformative therapies possible. But I also applaud the engineers behind the scene who are suddenly saying, hey, we can make that better, faster, cheaper, and we can distribute it and we can solve these. So once the biological risk and challenges are addressed, hand it over to the engineers and, and the geeks on, on the supply chain side. And, you know, I promise you they'll figure this out. Yeah. And, and Phil, I'll go back to a little bit about what I was asking before, because I also want to ask this to Janet, which is how do we balance that excitement and these prospects with things like cost and also how long it's going to take. So how do we balance that when we're talking to the public? Because we're also getting a lot of really good investment in this area. So it can be a little confusing. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And thank you for reminding me of the second part of the question. <laughs> it, it, it is challenging, right? Somebody who has a child or a family member who is you know, suffering from one of these rare diseases or one of these intractable diseases or in as a stage four, uh, you know, a cancer circumstance, it, it's very hard to look those people in the eye and say, we're doing the best we can, we're moving as fast as we can. Um, 
but I give hope in the sense that we've just seen in, I'll use COVID as an example, right? We've just seen the development and the rolling out of a vaccine, an mRNA-based based vaccine in record time. And again, that was driven by the need. So the, the underpinnings and the technologies and the regular uh, regulatory environments that sort of oversee these products from a safety and, and, and risk perspective are evolving dramatically to accommodate these new therapies. So I, I want to leave people with a sense of hope that not only are these therapies emerging and evolving, and there's a lot of investment uh, taking shape, but the entire world community is, is embracing and, and evolving to sort of help get these products out the door because they've been proven to be safe and effective and most important, probably durable and transformative. So I think for patients waiting for these and excited about the therapies, but saying, when will I get my therapy? We're, I think we are moving at a breakneck pace, but we will never compromise on safety and make sure that only legitimate science prevails. I think that that important the last point is very important. Obviously, safety is critical, um, but I also do agree that you know getting the handing it to the engineers, getting the the processes uh, involved, and CCRM is a good example. You know, if you're doing cell therapy. You don't want to be doing it in a small scale in your back room. That's what we do as scientists. But when you get to scale up to something that's going to be therapeutically important and widely available, you need people like CCRM and the other cell manufacturing facilities to do that. And then you can start to think about how to bring the cost of, of production down and therefore eventually the price to the system. I think about gene uh, editing as a very exciting. So with CRISPR-Cas9, all of a sudden you, you actually have such an effective way of editing the genome that you can think about editing people's own cells. So you can introduce the, the uh, gene editing vectors into people and start to actually change their cells uh, and fix the disease. And that's not necessarily an expensive undertaking. The components are small, the components are known. You have to go through the whole process to make sure you can understand it, that it's safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're seeing uh, really transformative therapies coming forward that will actually change things and, and bring and be widely applicable because some of the more serious uh, genetic diseases like sickle cell anemia, uh, beta thalassemia that affect particularly populations that in the developing world, we need ways of addressing those in, uh, with these kind of therapies as well. And that's a challenge. Lots and lots of challenges with this. And one of the things that we touched on a little bit that I want to make sure that we circle back to is commercialization, because Janet, this is something that you've always said is very important. Phil, this is something that you've worked towards in your career as well. Why do you think it's so important that we commercialize gene therapies? Well, I think that's not quite the way I would have put the question. Uh, the question is, uh, what is the best way to take a discovery from the lab and introduce it into patients? And you, very often that involves, at least at some stage in the process, commercialization. So that you can start with small studies, you can do small pilot trials that can be done locally, but as soon as you have something that you think could be widely used, then at that point, 
That's when the scale-up comes into play. That's when the engineering comes into play. That's when the whole marketing comes into play. You need a commercial partner. And so I think there's, there's steps forward. It, we're, we mustn't forget, however, that we are in this era of open science. So at the beginning of the discovery process, and COVID is a good example for this. So, you know, the COVID vaccines uh, were eventually produced by companies but the, the information that underlay that came from open science, that the, 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 the sequence of the virus was available, the structure of the spike protein was made available to everyone. And then, of course, companies with the ability to really scale up, which was absolutely necessary for the vaccines, come into play. So I think it's a combination, but commercialization is, a key, is, all, is very often, and certainly as you start to go out to a broader population, becomes a necessary part. Yeah, I would I would add to that. I would say that um, you've said that very well, Janet. I think that commercialization is sort of the, the, the both. It's the clinical development and the industrialization and the access. And and I think it's it's a team sport. So in the clinicians are brilliant at taking the biology and making something magical happen, you know, whether it's a gene editing step or if it's a therapeutic cell or an induced pluripotent stem cell being used as a therapeutic modality industrialization is a science and an, and, an, and an art on its own. So, you know, having people who really understand what it takes to manage, and you'll hear me use the term supply chain a lot, but how do you build a robust and reliable supply chain so that people all around the world can have access to these transformative and, and, and life-saving therapies? So it is not only the translational science, the clinical development, but it is also um, managing what today is a fairly complicated supply chain and making sense of it and making it better and faster and much more efficient. As we do that, do you think that public confidence in these therapies starts to become stronger? Do you think it changes, Phil? What do you think about that? I, I, I do. And, and it, it's probably, I know this is a global podcast and maybe it's an anomaly in the U.S. that we advertise these therapies exhaustively, whether it's a small molecule, whether it's a biologic, um, just building awareness that these are available. You know, in, in the U.S., the, every drug commercial ends with ask your doctor, you know, is this right for me? And, and, and what we need to do is evolve the landscape so that patients are aware, they understand what the benefits of these approaches are, and they ask their doctor that, you know, ultimately it is up to the prescribing clinician to make recommendations of what's in the best interest of that patient. But, um, you know, it, it, part of this evolution of where we are today and where we will be in the future will be driven by these, you know, very intimate, very, you know, <laughs> uh, clinically led conversations. And the rest of the industry is certainly evolving to make sure that the product is there, the product is safe, and, and the product is ultimately affordable. So my last question for the two of you today is really what you're most enthusiastic about as we move into this sort of next phase and we start to see more commercialization, we start to see these therapies coming into the clinic potentially. Um, Janet, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think I've said it throughout and um, that I actually think we're, we are at a famous tipping point. I think we really are at a tipping point for cell therapies, for gene therapies. We're seeing uh, discoveries being translated into products that 
I would never have even dreamt about. None of us would have dreamt about 20 years ago. Uh, so stem cell derived products, we're seeing them moving now into new therapies that are really going to have impact. We're seeing certainly gene therapies, whether it's CAR T and immunotherapies, or whether it's uh, actually you know, a gene therapy for rare genetic diseases. We're seeing diseases that I, would, I never thought we would be able to address with gene therapy being addressed. My, my favorite one, it's not particularly a Canadian, well, it has a Canadian component. There's always a Canadian component, but it's uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Again, the gene was cloned here and in Boston many years ago. A very large gene, that's a, the dystrophin gene. It's, in, it's expressed in every muscle in the body. And boys who have Duchenne muscular dystrophy have mutations in that gene. And every muscle, including the heart muscle and every muscle in the body eventually degenerates. It's a terrible, progressive and finally fatal disease. Um, how do you deal with that? How could you use gene therapy or genetic modification to actually deal with something that is so pervasive throughout the whole body? And that's where this CRISPR gene editing comes in. And there are now preclinical studies in mice originally, but also in dogs and moving rapidly into people where you can actually, using a, an adenovirus vector, take the gene editing tools, the CRISPR pieces, and actually get enough cells infected and modified in a dog to see measurable levels of dystrophin in lots of cells, not all cells in the muscle, but across the body and see some recovery. Now, this is not today, tomorrow, going to uh, cure every kid with uh, muscular dystrophy. But boy, I would never have thought we would be anywhere near that. And we are. And again, uh, to be local, the, the, the CEO of our hospital here at the Hospital of the Sick Children, uh, Ronnie Cohen himself works on uh, muscular dystrophies. And they have some very exciting studies also showing novel ways of doing gene therapy for this disease. So, so there's, a, there's a huge amount of excitement and ways to go forward. And we, across the world, we're seeing a big push in this direction. It's a combination of great science, great clinicians, uh, the right patient populations and involving the patient populations in the studies, and then obviously involving commercialization and industry partners to, to make this happen. Wonderful. Phil, what about you? That's a hard act to follow, uh, Janet. But. It, it, it really <laughs> is. I, can, can I just say ditto? No, but uh, that, I, I think this, this kind of ushering in this concept of curative treatments and or or more durable treatments this this is really exciting so i i won't restate what janet said i think that just on the clinical side the hope that this will bring to patients worldwide is is amazing i will take it from the industrial side and say this kind of convergence of the clinical science and this industry 4.0 that we are using data science we are using manufacturing sciences we are using a variety of different tools at, that we have available to us to really solve some of these you know what what couldn't be done even if the clinical science had evolved 15 20 years ago we are just uh, enabling uh, things like machine learning and automation and feedback control and processes that will enable these things to be manufactured in a much more simple um, and a much more 
from a pure engineering perspective, efficient and elegant manner. So I think for me, this, the, the fact that the clinical science is pushing the engineering so fast and it's pushing the regulatory environment so quickly and people are standing up and, and actually you know, taking these challenges on and embracing them and saying, this is something we can do, we must do, uh, it is just amazing to me. So I, I love the fact that not only is this a, a transformative clinical effort, but that the, that the entire industrial supply chain and, and manufacturing world is taking note and saying, yeah, this is important, we can do it. Amazing. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to look forward to in the next few years. And I want to thank both of you for being here today to talk about this. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Krista Lamb, and you've been listening to Commercializing Living Therapies with CCRM. If you liked today's show, please be sure to share it with others. You can find more episodes at ccrm.ca backslash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a question or comment about the show, email us at podcast at ccrm.ca or reach out to us on social media at ccrm underscore ca. Our hashtag for social media sharing is CCRM podcast. Thanks for listening.